Welcome back, everyone, to Behind the Shield, uh, anniversary edition today, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm your host, Marco Estrella. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I mentioned anniversary edition because it is our 12th episode, so our 12th podcast, rounding out the first year of talking about cybersecurity uh, with a whole slew of interesting guests. Uh, we had Checkpoint, IBM, Ping. Uh, we had Byron Akohito from uh, The Last Watchdog. Uh, and many more uh, that I forget, but uh, that were really, really cool. And uh, we're working on um, the 12 next months uh, of new and interesting guests. And we have some today for you. Um, and who knows, 12 months, maybe another. Yeah, we'll start. Well, I won't say 12 years of podcast. I think maybe Bill and Patrick might be retired by then. I don't know. Oh, we'll have an AI replacing us, I guess. <laughs> right. Uh, well, who knows? So let's start with the next 12 months, okay, uh, of interesting shows. So uh, as always, for those who are new to the show um, and you'd like to catch, you, you like what you hear, you'd like to catch up on previous episodes, just go to virtualguardian.com. Uh, you'll be able to find the episodes there, or you can also find the, the previous episodes on your favorite podcast services. Um, we're going to jump in really quickly, make sure we have plenty of time uh, for our cybersecurity hot topics uh, with our regulars, Patrick and Bill, as well as special guest today, Graham Cluley, and our sponsor today, Rudolf Arojo, uh, Arojo sorry, of Arista. After our hot topic segment, Rudolf will take uh, the spotlight for his topic, IoT, ransomware, insider threats, and your data, threat hunting to the rescue. So that's going to be pretty good. And, uh, and then we'll close out the agenda with the usual question and answers from the audience. Um, so if you have any during the show, don't forget, submit your questions, and we'll try to get it to as many as we can uh, in the Zoom interface. So let's get to it. To help me navigate the hot topic segment today, I call upon my trusty panel of cybersecurity experts, and they are Patrick Naum, Virtual Guardian's CEO. How's it going, Patrick? How are you doing, everyone? Great to be here. So Patrick helps clients uh, with solutions on how to defend themselves against all manner of cyber threats. Uh, we have Bill Stroop, co-founder of Navilogic in Minnesota uh, and CEO of Virtual Guardians U.S. Operations at the same time. Lots of hats there, Bill. I like, I like switching back and forth, but soon I'll only have one. So that's the good news. All right. <laughs> Our special guest, Graham Cluley, comes to us from the UK. Graham is a cybersecurity expert and host of the very successful podcast, Smashing Security, which is the winner of the best security podcast of 2018, 2019, oh. and the most entertaining podcast of 2022. Did you know I was going to mention that, Graham? I, I didn't. Oh, 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 if I didn't email you saying, please mention how good our podcast is. Um, <laughs> pleasure to be here. Hello, hello, everybody. Lovely to be here. Great to have you. Very happy to have you. Welcome, welcome. Um, and um, one day we, we we all hope at Behind the Shield to have uh, as many downloads as you have on your podcast there, Graham. Oh, wow. Uh, good, good stuff over there. Uh, quick question. How um, how many years has your podcast been going, Smashing Security? How, how long oh, have you been Too doing? many years. Too many years. Um, uh, six and a half. We've just put out episode 326 of the podcast. So we've been doing it for far too long. 
Um, but well done. So this is your 12th episode, is it? That's that's true. You know, most podcasts, I think they they only last eight episodes on average. So already you're doing better than the average podcast. Most people start off with the best intentions and then, you know, disappear. So uh, to get to 12, I think is a real achievement. Most people have run out of steam by then. Great. So to get to 326, you're once a week. <laughs> We are. We are once a week. week, and the occasional little extra episode has crept out as well. Um, uh, Smashing Security sort of takes a light-hearted look at the last week of cybersecurity, weird things which have happened, peculiar stories. Um, and uh, it's myself and my co-host, Carol Terrio. Uh, both of us have a background. We've been working in the world of antivirus for like 20, 25, 30 years in my case. Um, but... Uh, yeah, and, and some terrific guests as well. People like Gary Kasparov have been on and Troy Hunt wow. and um, wow. Miko Hippanen uh, have, yeah. have been on. So we, we've, had, we've been very lucky with the people who come on and shared their expertise and uh, have laughed at our lame jokes. <laughs> and do you do the, uh, the one-hour thing or you just let the clock run and uh, two hours, three hours? Oh, God, oh, two hours. You've got to be kidding no, we're, we're an audio-only podcast, so we don't do this video thing. This is all very, very strange to me. Um, so we just do audio. We edit it down. It's typically about 45 minutes to 50 minutes. Um, sometimes cool. we go a little bit longer, but no, we've, we've never gone to two hours. Okay, all right. It's not the Joe Rogan experience. Okay, very oh, good. Oh, I really hope not, no. <laughs> all right, well, great to have you. Um, and certainly, last but not least, on the panel today, uh, Rudolf Arojo has agreed uh, to join us uh, today. He's from today's sponsor, Arista. And uh, Rudolph is a seasoned security practitioner with a couple of decades of cybersecurity uh, behind the belt. He started his career responding to some of the world's most consequential breaches and now drives security product strategy at Arista Networks. Tell us a little bit about Arista and uh, your role there, uh, Rudolph, if you, want, yeah. if you may. Yeah, so, so Arista has been uh, around uh, primarily in the network infrastructure space. Uh, and, you know, uh, for the last uh, 15, uh, uh, you know, almost 20 years now. And, you know, we're the market leader in the high-end data center um, markets. So, you know, customers looking to build data centers, uh, you know, looking for network infrastructure. Uh, Arista is usually their top choice. Uh, and we're starting to expand now into other areas, both from a networking perspective, the things like campus, but also into cybersecurity. Um, and uh, what I do at Arista is really help drive the security strategy uh, for, for the company as a whole uh, and, and think about, you know, how do we align security with what we are already very good at, which is, which is the network infrastructure. Okay. How, how many employees are we looking at there at Arista worldwide? Uh, so we're about three and a half thousand at last count, but okay. we're growing. So that number is probably wrong already. <laughs> wow. Okay. Three and a half thousand. That's pretty, uh, pretty big. Well, welcome, uh, Rudolph, to, uh, to the show. Yeah, so, happy to be here. So, gentlemen, uh, let's jump right into the hot topic segments. Uh, we have some nice ones to discuss today, nice topics. Uh, and we're going to start with you, Bill. Um, you followed the, the recent exploits of a U.S.-based white hat researcher uh, named, and I don't want to get his name wrong, it's a, uh, Eaton Svir, Zviri. Uh, I don't know, this, my, I think that's how you pronounce it, Zvir. Zvir, okay. And he discovered some serious flaws in a well-known car maker's uh, platform. Can you tell us about what happened there? 
Yeah, I, I think I'll start by saying, why did I like this topic? And, and I think that uh, over the last 12 episodes, we've come on and we've, we've uh, dropped some heavy bad news about uh, you know, various exploits or problems in the cybersecurity space. And, and for once, taking a look at somebody who's on the white hat side, trying to figure out how do I still do what he's interested in, which is understanding how systems work and understand the security components of uh, our e-commerce systems in this case. Um, but, but going out and finding uh, issues that could impact, and I say could impact a lot of people, but hasn't because he took the, uh, the road of finding his vulnerabilities, doing ethical disclosure and moving forward. Uh, I think that's good news for security community. There's just not enough people out there looking to say, all right, how do I hopefully make something slightly better? So that's probably one of the things that caught me most. And I feel good today about coming on and not saying, all right, here's another disclosure uh, issue that may or may not affect you. So I think that's one of the things that appealed to me about the story. Um, so Eaton was looking at um, the Honda e-commerce platform. It's actually not for their auto side, it's actually for their power equipment side. So uh, anything from their generators to, uh, to boat parts and so on. And he was looking at the APIs that specifically are used to transact across this particular platform. And what he was able to do is find an API password reset that gave him eventually full access to the entire dealer network, uh, that entire dealer platform. It, it started out with him uh, initially deciding to look at Honda because uh, earlier this year, he looked at Toyota and was able to find similar types of vulnerabilities in the Toyota uh, dealer network uh, that would have revealed information about customers in Mexico. And uh, he did the Toyota findings because his family's always driven Toyota. So he said, well, it'd be an interesting, <laughs> an interesting way to move forward. Uh, and in this case, a buddy of his, says, uh, his family really enjoys Honda products. So Honda was next. Um, he didn't see anything specifically in the, the auto side, but when he moved over to the, um, uh, the power side, the, the marine and, and uh, power tools and so on, mowers and such, he took a look at the e-commerce platform and he didn't see anything initially by looking at uh, the sites such as uh, there's an ACE hardware site as well as a, a PEAT power equipment site. Initially, there wasn't anything that, that he found, but then actually looking at the, uh, the code, uh, the Java code and the JSON, he was actually able eventually to find a reference to an API that was a password reset. And the only thing that was actually required for him to gain access through that particular API was a legitimate email. Um, fortunately, this was provided to him via the documentation, the video provided by Honda Power uh, to say, this is how you're gonna set up your e-commerce portal that they normally send to their dealers. And they had a test site uh, that he was able to get the test email from. So he, he had the credentials he needed because he didn't want to actually go through and actually poke around in anyone's legitimate account. That, that was crossing the, the ethical boundary. Um, but once he found a, a test email, he had access to this API. He gained immediate access into um, a test site. And from there, he was able to actually traverse throughout the site because the way that the dealer network worked is you could actually 
um, uh, circumvent any type of login by simply modifying your dealer network number directly in the URL. So oh if you're dealer 1001 uh, and your uh, competitor's dealer network 1002, all you had to do is actually modify the dealer identification number directly in that particular URL and off you go, you're actually moved over. So lateral traversing was pretty easy for them. Uh, and then when you continue to look at the overall uh, code that's exposed on the site itself, he was able to eventually get full admin access to the entire platform by simply modifying uh, one of the login request um, parameters, something that was basically the equivalent of admin access falls to admin access true. Uh, and then he basically owned the entire dealer network e-commerce portal. Um, so it, it was a pretty interesting um, way to go in, which is generally thought of as a closed system. I mean, if you're not sitting at uh, you know, an Ace Hardware or someone's Power Sports or Bill's Marine, you usually don't have access to the system or you wouldn't really think about it. But, um, but if someone did see this and did what he did, the impact would have been uh, access to over 21,000 customer orders. Uh, access to almost 1,600 dealer websites. Um, there were accounts with first, last, and email. There was about 4,000. Uh, I'll round up there. Uh, 1,100 dealer emails. And then possibly what could have been done if you wanted to continue to push the boundaries was um, could have had access to the PayPal information, the Stripe information, all the payment information if you wanted to. Uh, and I had access to the financial report. So it was... It was a pretty interesting um, display of what can be done if you, you don't have strong APIs to begin with. Uh, you don't, in your APIs, reset passwords correctly. You don't have proper access controls within the application. Um, so it, it's a good reminder that, uh, that we all need to take a look at just beyond, you know, the, the world of vulnerability management goes to the, the platforms and portals that we all assume are secure or provided to us, you think, great, we, we now have access to this wonderful portal that our, our vendor gave to us, but there are security ramifications that we all need to think about through that process. Um, I'll also say that I know that we normally provide the URL to the story. Um, if you're gonna take a look at the URL, the story is good, Eden's blog, far better. Uh, it's actually fairly kind of entertaining as well as educational. So highly recommend taking a look, uh, look at his blog site. And um, that was my hot topic for the day. Do you have difficulty recruiting and retaining good IT resources? Is your focus on your core business and not on IT? You need ESI. And trust your infrastructure to a partner focused on your IT delivering solid services, improving security, reducing risks of failure, all while reducing your TCO. Find us at esitechnologies.com and click on Manage Services. That's, uh, they, sh they should definitely ship him a Honda Pilot or something for his oh, trouble, at least. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you brought that up because- At the very least. They, they, did, they sent him a thank you note. Um, so a thank you note? There's how no generous of them. How exactly. very kind of them for doing <laughs> <laughs> What's the what's the um, highest what's the high end uh, Honda there? Honda um 
couldn't. Yeah, yeah. I would say he moved to the Acura, Acura line well, for that type of work. Acura? Yeah, okay. Yeah, going the Acura. <laughs> Do you remember when Yahoo got hacked? And uh, it, it, someone found a vulnerability, which meant they could have accessed like 100 million different accounts, and they reported it to Yahoo. And I think Yahoo said, thank you very much. It's very good of you to tell us that. Um, here is a voucher, which you can use in our online store, $12. You can go and buy yourself a Yahoo t-shirt. Wow. Doing that. Because they didn't have a bug bounty. Did, so did Honda have some kind of bug? Clearly not, really. Nope, no no, just no got bug bounty program in place at all. Um, and... and I don't think he was necessarily doing it for the bounty. It was because sure. he really had the interest. But I, I do feel as though that uh, they saved them from uh, what could have been a very disastrous situation. So, yeah. um, but, it to to show, but it goes to show that if it, you know, the disastrous situation to a lot of these organizations is unknown. They can't quantify it. They have no idea. Because if they did... They would they would cut this guy a check or I don't know what they would fly him in their private jet. I don't know what they would do. But and, and it shows that it's still an uphill battle because if they don't recognize the amount of money and damage and reputational or not that this guy may have saved them, it's crazy. I mean, give, yeah, I give the poor guy the problem, a, right? a generator. I don't know. <laughs> what was that, Rudolph? I was saying like part of the challenge with companies of the size is they've got hundreds of these websites that are lying around, some of which were built by yeah. you know someone that probably didn't have any kind of cybersecurity awareness. And these are always the easiest ways to get in if you're an attacker because you know no one's coming in through Honda.com. They're coming in through these these other sites that are less got. Which brings me to my question here. Uh, it's a Honda problem for sure. But is it a third-party risk assessment type deal that we're talking about here? The software supply chain problem. The software supply. So it is a third-party risk uh, assessment and necessity yeah. somewhere. Yeah, to, here, to, 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 as Rudolph is mentioning, we don't know who's doing these websites, right? Yeah, I mean, he, he points out in his blog, and it specifically says, when making a single-page application in Reactor Angular, be careful as you build the application. Remember that your visitors' browsers will see all your code. Dot dot dot. So it is a reminder that when you choose the platform for something like this type of e-portal or e-commerce portal, make a good choice because if you're exposing the code, you're also exposing your problems. Bill, thank you very much. You Off bet. to the races. That was a great, uh, great topic. We're moving on to the next one, and the next one is our guest, Graham Cluley. Graham. You have a nice, juicy, controversial one for us today. <laughs> well, uh, is it controversial or not? Let, let's find out. So Let's find out what happened exactly. Everyone loves a lawyer, don't they? Oh, they're so wonderful, aren't they? I, you know, I don't think they're paid enough for all the excellent work they do and the long ski holidays they go on when you're just about to move house. I'm trying to move house at the moment, as if you couldn't tell. Um, and in the UK, at least, it's a nightmare doing that because your solicitors are always on holiday. Um, but anyway, there is a big law firm here in the UK. They are called Knights. And um, there's been a bit of disgruntlement at Knights because some of the staff are a little bit grumpy because it was pay review time. And they thought, well, you know, cost of living going up and everything. I don't know if you know the UK economy is tanking. Um, let's not get too political. But anyway, the UK economy isn't doing too well. Not, none. The rest of the world is doing that great, to be honest. And people who work at nights were thinking, oh, you know, well, maybe we'll get a pay rise. Maybe we'll get something. And a memo came round telling them, no, nope, none of you are getting pay rises. Or the people who are getting pay rises, it's well below uh, the market rate. And uh, 
So there was a lot of, you can imagine, a lot of pouting, a lot of grumpiness going on. And then workers opened their inboxes one morning and they saw a message had arrived seemingly from their HR department with the subject line, important notice, salary increase. <laughs> and it said, hi, after assessing the current salary structure as provided under the terms of your employment, it was discovered that you are due for an annual salary increase, and it gave a double-digit percentage figure. Lovely, double digits. That sounds all right, doesn't it? Beginning in the upcoming fiscal quarter, the details of your salary increase, it said, are enclosed in the attached document. Please ensure all details are correct to avoid it. Now, I can see already Patrick has got his head in his hands, either because he's thinking, why, is he in, why have I been invited on the podcast? Or because he's thinking to himself, well, I bet that document is malicious. It's going to have macros in it. It's going to fish them. It's going to infect their computers. Ah, ha, ha. No, Patrick, that's not the case. And anyone who's watching this, not the case. The good news is that email had not been sent by cyber criminals. The bad news, however, was that the email was a complete lie because the email was actually a phishing test. The email was actually sent under the authority and permission of Knights, the law, law firm, by That's some wicked. phishing. Yeah, because, of course, you know, what's an incentive for people to click on something right now? Things like salaries definitely are going to be something people want to click on. So it's understandable. So people opened the attachment and they were going, they were told, nah, 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 you failed a phishing test. <laughs> now, you might be surprised to find that the staff at Knights are not too happy about receiving this message because they're already pissed off that they haven't had a salary increase. And now their HR department or whoever in IT has decided to email all of them saying, hey, salary increase, you know, haha, we're only kidding you about not giving you a salary. Here is the salary increase. Only to be told, only to be told that they've, uh, anyway, this has gone down like a lead balloon. And there are partners at the law firm who threatened to leave. Others just say this is completely boneheaded. And even though there were clues in the email, so it was obvious from the email address that it was sent from outside the company and there were things like that. I mean, of course, cyber criminals do use social engineering tricks like this. But my, I guess my question for you guys is, is it legitimate for a phishing test or is more damage done via this kind of phishing, you know, is this okay or not? Because it doesn't seem to have gone down that popularly inside nights. Uh, I mean, I the think- was terrible. It, yeah, the timing, timing was poor. And uh, <laughs> uh, I, I would say that if it wasn't for the fact that the people within the organization already know that salaries are a hot topic, um, I probably would have avoided that. Maybe wait for it's time to choose your your benefit package or something along those lines. <laughs> or it could have been it could have been something less contentious. It could have been, oh, you know, we're we're thinking of initiating a new pizza policy at the company on Fridays. There's gonna be a new flavor of pizza. Yeah. Vote for your kind of pizza. Something which doesn't rile people up quite so yeah, much yeah. as their yeah. their financial compensation. I mean, I think it's legitimate to remind people that cyber criminals can use these tricks, but maybe not pull that stunt against your own staff. You, you know what? It, it, and it <laughs> happened here. I have to be honest. We had a phishing uh, simulation with our, our 
I got caught on opening an email. Uh, I didn't open the URL or anything, but I did open the email and they have those statistics. Yeah. And it was, it wasn't as bad as what you just described. It was very close. And I, I considered it leveraging insider information, which can happen by the way. Yes. But it, it, you know, it begs the question on coaching, you know, the people that are in charge, charge of these, uh, these awareness programs, they have to be mindful of a business <laughs> reality because if they're only told catch as many people as you can with, with when, if you're yeah. inside an organization, it's extremely easy to walk in the park. So they have to be mindful and coach to be careful and you know, what they piggyback on to launch these awareness programs. So, so you know what, a good thing you mentioned it because I'm sure it's happening elsewhere and, and these, these awareness folks, you know, the job is in essential. It has to be done, but there's varying degrees. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, um, I mean, to piggyback on what you're saying, Patrick, I, I, these turn to be a lot of gotcha kind of moments, right? Like you will catch a certain number of employees that click it. I mean, you know, I, I was talking to CISO about this about a year ago. And one of the things he said is, look, if your security is dependent on someone not opening an attachment or clicking a link, you've already failed. Yeah, it's true. Right? So, so I, I, I feel like catching people opening up an email, in your case, not even clicking on anything, just seeing the email, I think there's definitely value in user awareness. But I'm not sure catching people opening emails is is really the best way, like in, independent of the topic, right? Like I, I just feel like you'll always catch people opening an email. What what are you really getting from it, right? Other than embarrassing the person and saying, "Hey, you know, you you opened up an email you shouldn't have." And what you're resignations. Really, what yeah, well yeah, and what you're really teaching people, you know, the full the way to pass all these phishing simulation tests is never open an email at work ever. <laughs> And we all know someone in the office who's like that. It's like he never replies. He never gets back to me. Well, he's just he's just going for the full 100 percent perfect score on the fishing test, isn't he? He's just ignoring everything. So then he can't get. I heard, by the way, before we move on, I heard about another really cunning trick which you can do with a fishing test, which I'll just share with you, gentlemen, and everyone watching out there on the Internet, which is to send out a message saying if you're fed up with fishing tests and want to opt out or fishing simulations, then please <laughs> click here <laughs> and enter your details. That's awesome. <laughs> on that note, thank you very much. We're going to have to move on. Um, Patrick, you are the uh, next up. We are a little bit behind on the clock. Okay. Uh, so I'll give you uh, two minutes, Patrick. You, good luck. And it's going to be some uh, good news. Uh, the good guys might be gaining a bit of ground. Please enlighten us shortly. Well, you just took 30 seconds out of my two minutes right there. Go ahead. Yes. So I came across this article from The Economist and, uh, you know, Graham uh, probably knows an individual called Sharon Martin, ex-cybersecurity chief of oh, Great yes. Britain. So his headline, the headline of the article was, he argues that cyberspace, and I was reading this very diagonally. So I, I went from the beginning to the end of the title. It says, Sharon Martin agrees that cyberspace is finally getting safer. But then I read again and it says, if unevenly getting, getting safer. So it attracted my attention. So his premise on the article was that following an attack, I don't know if you remember the Mirai botnet attack in 2016, 20-year-old uh, uh, gentleman uh, captured CCTV cameras, uh, default passwords, and launched an attack against DIN. Uh, Din moves data across networks, and he just literally, uh, and it was 
Amazon, Twitter, Reddit just stopped working for, for a day. And th this really opened the, uh, the realm of IoT security. And back, in the, back then, the, actually, the actual passwords are hard-coded in these devices. So you couldn't even change the passwords if you wanted to. So it opened this, this, this can of worm of, of you know, people you know, uh, talking about cybergeddon and Armageddon and whatnot and the catastrophic events, which basically you know, alerted a lot of people to this, to this issue as well as governments. Um, and you know, he starts talking in the article on you know, legislation and, and, and changes that the government is trying to make in terms of different, you know, and putting responsibility more on the, the end users, right? On, sorry, on the software vendors to change policy. So in the UK and European Union, they've already st stated that they will not allow, you know, default password. And it was really interesting to see how very prescriptive they were in terms of the laws and regulations to prevent them from, from you know, replicating such a, a scheme of, of hard coding passwords. And he's, he's articulating during this article that you know, there's a lot of discrepancies as well in terms of how we prioritize certain uh, security issues versus others. He went on to talk about the uh, health service executive uh, issue, uh, I think it was 2021 in Ireland, where the, uh, there was a ransomware attack. And because of the laws, uh, the laws favor disclosure if there's information theft or identity or PII theft. Well, guess what? During that attack, people didn't get their care, they didn't get cancer treatment, they didn't get access to labs. So the argument was, was made to say, how come we favor, okay, it's important to protect people's information, but how, how come you favor that versus affecting healthcare patients? And the reason why he talked about that is because they only advised the authorities when personal information was revealed, not when people didn't have care anymore. All right. So, so could you imagine that? It doesn't make any sense. So when you look at all of this, he's saying that governments are starting to step step up. And we know that it's happening in the U.S. as well, with the Biden administration wanting to put more and more responsibility in security by design in software vendor software, right? To make sure that we develop secure products from day one. Because the challenge we have with organizations today, they don't know what to put the stand on, right? You don't. Because ultimately, cybersecurity comes—it's it, a corporate responsibility. Enterprises today have to deal with all these security issues and investments and whatnot, and have to manage risk. So the government is saying, you know what? We have to put more responsibility into software vendors' hands on developing more secure products. So that was the so so. Sharon was arguing that there's progress. Personally, I think it was a bit, you know, jovialistic in the sense that. I, you know, this was 2016 and stuff has started to happen since then. We're seven years later. It's moving, but very slow, albeit slowly. I contrast that to uh, our attendance at Black Hat in 2022. And Jeff Moss mentioned everything's going to get worse before it gets better. So I think we're taking incremental st uh, steps in the right direction from a legislative perspective. But uh, there's a lot of uh, ground to cover. And, uh, and it becomes, it's becoming more and more important. And unfortunately, as is most, most of the time the case, you know, there's not a lot of self-regulation by industry, right? So everyone's pretty much doing what they want. But I think there's, there's, there's a, the positive here is that there's going to be more incentive to making sure that security is thought of by design and not after the fact.
So in the short time I had, uh, I found it interesting. The news is positive, but not all that positive still. There's a lot of work to do. As the most certified integrator in Canada, ESI can help you define security controls for each unique segment of your network, minimizing access to cyber criminals. Contact us at info at esitechnologies.com or visit esitechnologies.com. We'll take every little bit, Patrick. Uh, honestly, sometimes we do the show and it's always negative and, and people <clears throat> getting owned. And But uh, we'll take it. We'll take it. Thank you for making it concise. Uh, appreciate everybody on the panel for the Hot Topic segment. We're going to move on to the next part of our show. Uh, which is our spotlight speaker, uh, Rudolf uh, Arojo, who will talk to us. And I'll remind you, his talk is titled IoT, Ransomware, Insider Threats, and Your Data, Threat Hunting to the Rescue. So Rudolf, uh, the next 15 minutes are yours. Take it away. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Marco. Um, yeah, actually, you know, a lot of the hot topics that we talked about in, in an odd way actually connect back to to this topic right i mean if you think about this this last topic that patrick brought up around uh you know just the fact that uh you know security has actually in fact gotten better uh you know i think more people are concerned about it even even the phishing tests which you know again i i'm, I'm skeptical about have i think improved awareness and there's been a couple of consequences of that that i think are interesting right uh one is uh you know, one of our customers that's a CISO, you know, said to me, look, you know, we view every attack as an insider attack. And I was like, well, you know, tell me more, right? And what he said is, look, you know, these days, almost every attack has session, right? Uh, someone's credentials got stolen or there's an app that has been exploited. Um, and in fact, I think if you look at the stats, you know, from the likes of CrowdStrike and, uh, you know, uh, others, 71% of the breaches these days that that customers uh, are dealing with or or you know you know incident response companies are responding to show no traces of malware uh, right and i think that is actually testament to the fact that as an industry we're better at protecting against malware uh, now the bad news of that is the attackers have kind of changed their tactics right and this is that constant cat and mouse game uh, where they've moved to a model where now they're relying on non-malware techniques, or these so-called living of the land techniques, where they might be using, you know, tools that are already deployed, think Microsoft Office or PowerShell or Python or what have you. Um, so that's kind of one kind of trend that we've seen. The other thing is, you know, topic of IoT, and we talked about Honda uh, earlier in, in, in this call, you know, the devices on this planet have just quadruple or pentuple or, you know, whatever, pick your favorite multiple here. And right? I mean, we've got, you know, billions of devices at this point, and that number is increasing exponentially every year. Um, now, from a company's perspective, you know, they have all of this attack surface that they've historically not monitored. Uh, heck, as we talked about in the, in the Honda case, historically not even necessarily been aware of, uh, you know, to be able to protect and, and make sure they have controls uh, over that. In our own experience, if you look at a typical kind of a campus network where, you know, customers have offices or branches and, and you know, retail stores or things like that, we see somewhere between 40, sometimes even as high as 60% of the devices tend to be in this unmanaged bucket, right? And a lot of that is IoT, but there's certainly, you know, BYOD and things of that nature. You know, kind of an interesting example I'll give you of this, right? You know, one of our customers, like three, four years ago, 
they you they found a, a a insider that had actually tapped their voice over IP phones in a couple of sensitive locations, executive offices, conference rooms, etc., were recording these phone calls and then using those phone calls to do things like insider trading, blackmail, uh, et cetera, right? And, and so if you think about it, you know, we are used to thinking about, hey, do you have, you know, endpoint controls on your Windows machines, your Mac machines, but what about that voice over IP phone, right? It suddenly opens up a, a whole new kind of attack surface, can of worms, uh, if, you know, whatever you choose to call it, right? And, um, you know, to, to Patrick's point, I think, one of the challenges with this IoT space is uh, there's really no standards, right? And this is where I think the government is trying to step in now and, and kind of apply some of those standards. But every device is cheap. It, you know, that's the whole point of IoT. You can have these really cheap sensors or building automation or security cameras. Um, and, and all of them are built with, without really any standards. They're hard to patch. They might have all kinds of vulnerabilities. I mean, we've seen devices that are running operating systems that were created in the in the '90s uh, that are still out there, uh, right? And 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 so the, the the challenge is how do you manage that security problem effectively? Uh, and it gets even more complicated when you think about some of these are also medical devices, right? Or some of these are controlling safety functions at a at a utility, uh, right? Or a power generation plant, or or, or what have you. So there's real world implications, you know, much like that that example, you know, about you know ransomware and and the impact on someone's life. Uh, how, how these IoT devices are not just these cheap sensors that you might think about; they could actually have direct impact. I'll give you an example that we were actually involved in. Uh, so a healthcare system, a hospital system, uh, got compromised through their industrial washing machines, uh, right? So they, you know, as you can imagine, a large hospital, you know, they're not you know, using washing machines like you and me, they've got these large washing machines uh, that are remotely managed, remotely controlled, uh, et cetera. And one of these washing machines became the vector through which the attacker was able to actually get into their environment. Um, and so we're seeing this as an increasing trend where things like the voice over IP systems, things like the, the HVAC systems, things like the, the washing machines in this case are becoming the way that attackers get in and of course, once they get in, because networks still tend to be so flat and have that kind of squishy center, uh, you know, once they're in, they're in, right? And they're able to kind of move laterally. They're able to kind of get to your crown jewels, get to those medical devices, et cetera. So while you might not care about the washing machine being hacked, if that washing machine is a route to get to uh, an insulin pump, or if it's a route to get to your medical records database, that's a big problem. Um, you know, so, as I mentioned, attackers are starting to use these tactics more and more. I think the most publicly documented example of this uh, was the Lawrence ransomware. You know, they're one of the major players in this space at this point. Um, and they use the Mitel phone system at a number of, uh, uh, you know, organizations uh, because there was a, a vulnerability in these Mitel phone systems that allowed them to kind of get in. Uh, and again, once they were in, they were able to get to, into the, to the regular computing devices, to the regular servers, uh, and so on. So this is an area that I think customers are really struggling with because you can't put your traditional endpoint security there. You're not getting logs of these devices. You know, so you know that you've got this broader attack surface, sometimes 100%, 120% more than what you're managing. Uh, but you're struggling with getting telemetry off it, getting investigative capabilities on it, getting detection capabilities on it. 
um, et cetera, right? Um, and, and again, these IoT devices are not just uh, important because they can be hacked. They're important because they, they provide a pathway to get into the rest of the organization. So what are we seeing now kind of the customers then do about it, right? I think the first thing is really understanding your attack surface. You know, what is it that you're, you're, you're dealing with? Couple of things that I we've seen work well for customers. One is get a good outside in view of, of you know where where uh, and what does that attack surface look like. Um, you know a lot of times that that comes back to uh, things like Shodan. You know tools that can give you a sense for your attack surface, but it's also important to have an inside out view, right? Where you're looking at your network to see, okay, hey, which of these devices do I know? Do I recognize? And which of them do I not? Right. So one of the things we do. Uh, uh, you know, uh, fairly often is, uh, you know, using a, a tool like an NDR, a network detection response tool, you can look for devices that maybe are speaking to a very few uh, destinations, right? They, they're running very few protocols, not running any of your traditional kind of enterprise protocols like Kerberos or SMB, uh, et cetera, uh, using maybe an uncommon OS, you know, not your standard Windows, Mac OS, et cetera, uh, not using browser traffic. So if you've got the tooling to look for Kind of those signs like that, that's often a good way to identify these non-traditional computing devices, right? These, uh, these devices like IoT, like your washing machines, et cetera. So there's a number of things you can do to identify what that attack surface is uh, if you have the ability to kind of go look for and hunt for, for these signals, if you will, both from the outside in and the inside out. Uh, the other thing is if you're in, uh, in, in, uh, in industries like healthcare or manufacturing, uh, you can look for very specific protocols. Like, so in, in, in the case of healthcare, for instance, HL7 or DICOM are, are, are common protocols that uh, you, you'll find that these medical devices will use. Uh, and it's a good way to kind of get a sense for, okay, who are all of the, the devices or what are all the devices on my network uh, that are using um, you know, these, these protocols and kind of get a sense for the attack surface. Uh, so that's kind of one part of it, right? The other part is obviously, Understanding where your data is and what your data is, um, you know, and that that that's the that's the other challenge that I think customers struggle with. Uh, and look, encryption has been certainly been talked about a lot as being you know the solution. The reality of it is, as we look at our at customers and we look at the industry as a whole, uh, encryption is still under prevalent, if, if that's a word, right? Uh, more and more, uh, we are seeing encryption get there, but. Uh, a lot of data still sits on the network or still uh, moves on the network unencrypted. You know, for instance, uh, SMB, right? The file sharing protocol that is very common on, on, on Windows networks. I, I'd say, you know, 90% of the traffic we see tends to be the unencrypted SMB, which has been, you know, out there for, you know, 20, 30 years. And, and even though Microsoft has been strongly pushing for SMB3, which is the encrypted version, uh, very, very little traffic is, is, is encrypted, right? So the power of legacy is really, is really uh, powerful here. So while it is getting better, I think an attacker on, on any given network these days still has the ability to find enough kind of unencrypted data uh, that they can cause that ransomware damage or, or they can cause that destructive damage where they take down your data or you know, disable the healthcare system. I think there was an example even in Germany, similar to what, what, uh, what Patrick brought up where uh, the hospital actually couldn't check in patients anymore. And so they had to move this patient off to another hospital, which was you know, some miles away. And as a consequence of that, uh, that patient actually didn't survive. You know? So these things have real impact. And so as much as 
you know, it sounds theoretical, hey, what is my attack surface? Where's my data, et cetera? I think it's really important that kind of customers get a handle on this. Um, the other thing that you can do once you've got a sense for that is look for the obvious, right? I mean, it, it might sound kind of uh, uh, dumb, but it, it's amazing how much you can find by just looking for the word password uh, on the network or looking for logins or SSNs or security numbers or you know, Id identifying numbers, et cetera. Uh, you know, look for files that are moving across the, the wire. And so we find a lot of uh, threat hunting capabilities that, that will go look for these things that are uh, just obvious on the network. And again, you can get a lot more sophisticated with this. You can look for protocols like DC, RPC. You can, you know, that, that can tell you exactly when remote execution is going on, et cetera. But if you're just getting started, like I said, just looking for the word password or the word PWD or looking for a username or looking for an SSN, you know, just using maybe regular expressions is, is a great way to kind of get a sense for where all of this data is, because what you don't want to find out is when you get the ransom note, right? I mean, I always tell customers, look, I mean, detecting ransomware is actually not hard. You will detect ransomware inevitably when you get that, uh, that, that ransom note, but you've got to be able to find it earlier than that. Uh, you know, otherwise, uh, you know, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, right, you're going to you you're, you lose control of that situation. You're you're not left with a whole lot of negotiating uh, power, even if you want to negotiate with the threat actors, which I know not everyone wants to. Uh, but you know, it it is unfortunately the reality. If you don't know what you're dealing with, it's very very hard to to kind of go from there. So so what are some recommendations, right? Like, firstly, you really get need to get into this continuous hunting kind of mode. You can't simply rely on what your endpoint controls are telling you or what your sim is telling you because a lot of these systems are not going to show up in these uh, in these traditional sources, right? So you've got to, the onus is really on you as a customer or to engage with a service provider if, if that's how you manage your security to get this continuous diagnostic to answer, okay, what is on my network? Because that's going to change every day. Uh, I mean, we've seen things like Tesla show up on networks, right? Uh, so simply knowing what's on the network is, is, is a continuous hunting process. Uh, and then a continuous defense process, right? Depending on what you find, if you find a lot of these IoT devices, making sure you've got the hardening processes in place, right? Making sure you're working with the vendors of these, uh, these devices. You know, I saw an interesting report from McKinsey actually earlier this week uh, that said, uh, you know, security is, I think, the biggest burden or the biggest barrier, I should say, for customers looking to adopt IoT devices. Um, and so the vendors are actually quite motivated now, uh, both due to the, some of the regulations that Patrick touched on, uh, but also because uh, there is an actual financial motive. You know, McKinsey is, estimates that I think the, 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 the total addressable market uh, could grow by billions of dollars, right, 25, 30% more if they could de deliver a more secure experience out of the box. And I think that's where we're starting to see the vendors kind of really uh, get their act together. But I think that there's a lot of pressure that you as a customer uh, can also apply. And really part of this is making it part of your procurement process, uh, right? And then the final thing is like we said earlier, I mean, make sure you're implementing as much encryption as possible, right? So if you're using protocols like LDAP and HTTP and, and SMB and FTP, look at the secure options for that, right? Like look at the encrypted options for that. Uh, how do you detect when unencrypted data is on the wire, especially if it's unencrypted sensitive data, and then work with the business owner saying, hey, you know, you've got you know, a certain amount of time to remediate this, uh, you know, because this poses a real business risk to our environment. 
Uh, and then finally, you know, the last topic is this topic that we touched on earlier, right? This whole idea of user behavior uh, and how do you continuously modify that? Again, while I'm not a fan of the gotcha kind of moments, I think training users is certainly important and making them understand that, yeah, that little smart device that maybe you're bringing into work does add risk to the to, to, to our organizational environment and what you're allowed to do or what networks you're allowed to join with that smart device, uh, you know, making sure that they understand that. So, so that's my, my kind of my spiel for today, right? Just making sure that customers understand what attack surface they're dealing with, making sure they have the right controls in place, and then making sure that they're, they're hunting as those things change very often. Back to you, Marco. Never trust, always verify. Have you adopted a zero trust security framework? Do you require all users, whether in or outside your network, to be authenticated, authorized, and continuously validated to get or keep access to your applications and data? Only the paranoid survive. So keep your intellectual property safe with a zero trust attitude. Contact ESI at info at esitechnologies.com or visit esitechnologies.com. Thank you very much. Very interesting stuff, uh, Rudolf. What, first thing that comes to mind is why, why is it so hard to detect maliciousness from an IoT device? Why is it so hard to, to do that? I think part of it is there's just no visibility, right? I mean, you, you don't know, a lot of times you don't know these devices even exist. Yeah. So they're not part of your, your field of view, if you will. And, and as a consequence, you know, you don't realize, I mean, this goes back to Bill's story about the Honda website, right? Like, you know, I'd be willing to bet that maybe that Honda website was not part of anyone's inventory that they checked on every month or every quarter to say, hey, is this vulnerable, et cetera. I think we see that a lot with IoT because the number of devices doubles and quadruples in the, within the organization very, very quickly. Uh, right. And, and so that's the big challenge, I think, just simply awareness of what's there. Kind of like a sh type of shadow IoT, shadow IT, shadow IoT. It, it's interesting when everyone went home for COVID, you know, the only things that were showing up on the network were the IoT devices. And it was it was kind of an eye-opening moment for a lot of customers in March of 2020. It was like, wait a second, no one's in the office. Where is all of this internet traffic coming from? <laughs> And it's all headed to countries that maybe you don't want your, your traffic headed to, right? So there's, there's, there's a lot of, uh, I think, awareness that still needs to be built around that. Rudolph, do you see a lot of people moving to segmentation uh, for those IoT devices? I mean, you talked about a couple of different ways to um, understand the consequences of these devices on the network, but I, I immediately go to segmentation in my mind. Like As soon as I discover them, I feel like I, need, I, I should move them so they don't impact my internal environment. I, I think you're exactly right, right? I mean, you know, look, segmentation is the way to do it. I don't know about you, my experience as customers are struggle with segmentation to begin with, right? I mean, the networks are so flat on the inside that, uh, you know, independent of IoT, but, but you're exactly, I mean, exactly right. And I think one of the things that we're starting to see the industry kind of get to is really an identity-based segmentation, right? So not just, hey, this VLAN or this IP address belongs there, but to say, I know this is an IoT device and IoT devices have no business talking to my HR system or talking to my, you know, my DevOps systems, et cetera, right? So, so I think that, that that's absolutely correct that that's the way forward. Okay, all right. Um, let me just see here. Do you have any customer questions in the audience? 
Uh, is it really possible to contain a ransomware threat or should you focus exclusively on prevention? Well, that's an interesting question, right? Because you absolutely should focus on prevention, but the idea that you can prevent every single threat, I think, you know, it's just, I mean, look, I mean, the number of cases we see of ransomware on any given day is, is testament to the fact that you can't really prevent them all. Uh, you know, someone is going to send you that salary raise email and you're going to open that document and it's going to trigger ransomware or it's going to come in through an IoT device. So I think my advice to customers really is how quickly can you detect the ransomware uh, threat, right? And there's a number of early warning signs that you can detect before that encryption event even occurs. Uh, and that's where we've been most successful helping customers respond to a ransomware attack because if they're not able to encrypt anything or they encrypt a very small portion of your infrastructure, you have a lot more leverage. Uh, well, again, whether you're going to negotiate with them or whether you're going to restore from backup or, or however you decide you know, is the right thing for your business. So yes, prevention is certainly important, but I think early detection, you know, just like with healthcare, right? I mean, you want to do everything that possible to prevent you know, disease or prevent, uh, uh, you know, but you've got to also do your annual checkup, right? And you've got to kind of go in and make sure you get you know, the scans and the blood work and, and so on, uh, because uh, with a lot of, you know, especially terminal diseases, uh, the earlier you catch them, the better you're shot at, at kind of, uh, you know, beating them. Yeah. And there's, there's starting to be some solutions. Well, starting. There's some solutions out there that their claim to fame uh, is prevention of ransomware, blocking of ransomware, uh, usually solutions based on machine learning and uh, uh, behavioral analysis, obviously not signature based. And uh, is that the way? Is that the way Arista is looking at the future? Is with with those types of solutions? Or yeah, well, I mean, we're certainly heavily invested in, in in that space, right? I think for us, you know, again, if you can find those early warning signs, like you know, look, when a ransomware attacker gets in, they're going to try and find your crown jewels, right? They want to know what's the data that's going to cause you the most pain, and to do that, you know, they're going to spend you know hours, days, sometimes even weeks on your network. Uh, trying to find, okay, where's the file shares that have that data, exactly? And so if you can detect that that kind of traffic that is trying to enumerate, uh, you know, that, and, and a lot of that is, does take machine learning because let's be honest, right? I mean, people are using file shares on your network all the time and they're doing it legitimately because that's part of their job. Uh, so how do you detect this, this one kind of connection that is the ransomware attacker? So you do need a more data science-based approach. You can't just look for every SMB packet on the wire. Um, and that is an area that we're very, very heavily invested in uh, at Arista. Okay. Okay. Panel, any questions for Rudolf on his spotlight talk? Any comments or questions? Well, you know, just maybe a comment on, you know, you got you you have to prevent, but you also have to be ready if it happens, not just detect, mm. you gotta be ready. And that goal, you need you need a proper backup, immutable backup, storage regular testing, restore testing. You know, a lot of companies we we dealt with that paid a ransom, well, re recovering from, even if you have the keys, takes sometimes much more time than restoring from backup. So you're paying thinking you're going to be back in operation within a couple of days. Mm -hmm. It's You're weeks in and you're not even in, in operations yet. So focus on those backups, regardless of what you do in prevention and detection. You also be ha you have to be ready with your your what we call our last line of defense. And one of our uh, engineers even said went further. Said it's your last line of survival. Last line of survival. Yeah, yeah, we're starting to hear that one a lot. 
Yeah, and I think preparation is a big part of it, right? I mean, there's also the the non-tactical side of this, which is how are you going to deal with the, the PR fallout? Yep. You know, do you have, you know, outside counsel, inside counsel that understand what their role is involved, right? Because a lot of this now, you've got 72 hours to disclose, uh, right? And I, I think where a lot of companies fail is, look, you know, having been in this industry for long enough, responded, I don't fault customers for getting breached, right? Because if an attacker is determined to get in, they're going to find a way in. I think where customer organizations fail is how they respond to the breach. Uh, you know, they tell you, well, nothing really happened. And then, you know, six weeks later, they tell you, well, actually, we lost every single record in the, in, and then, you know, two months later, it's like, well, kidding, actually, uh, we only lost half the records, right? And, and I think that's when you lose trust, the brand values is lost. And, and, and so I think preparation to your point, Patrick, is super important. And it's not just the technical aspect. Very, very interesting. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Uh, for all your insight. We're wrapping up uh, time. We're, we're getting up against the hour. Thank you uh, for your talk, Rudolph. Graham, thanks for your participation. Um, I want to thank our sponsor, Arista. Uh, Rudolph, very interesting talk in uh, the panel today, of course. I want to thank uh, Graham Cooley for taking the time uh, from his super uh, busy and successful podcast that we aspire to one day, <laughs> Smashing Security, uh, to join ours. Uh, thank you to our regular panelists, Patrick, Bill, as usual. Great job. Thank you very much. And uh, of course, certainly not the least, thank you very much for all our audience listening and who will download the podcast at a later time. The link to today's show will be made available as usual sometime in the next few days. Um, if you've missed any part of today's events, you can also listen to uh, back um, episodes on virtualguardian.com. Thank you again for all your support. And as always, remember, when you're behind the shield, you're ahead of the game. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.